Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. Hey there, listener. Thank you for making time to be here with me today. You're going to hear a conversation I got to have with Peter Drury. Now, Peter is a longtime colleague and friend of mine. He is well, well known nationally and internationally for his insights and thoughts on fundraising as they relate to strategy, to business, to making the case for hope and justice, to making the case for compassion. He, and ethics, he has so much uh, goodness on, on the topic of ethics. And he tackles this word, which I've thought of for a long time, is kind of a stale word, and the word is trustworthy. But he rearranges it in a way that I found really profound and helpful just in terms of both thinking about that word and also what it might mean for us as we navigate through these odd times. With Peter, you know, you're going to have a wide and deep conversation. This is no exception to that. It fundamentally is a conversation, I would say, about belonging and being human. And if there's one thing that we all know, it's that we share in common that we all want to belong. We all want to be seen. We all want to belong and we're all human. And this conversation highlights that in some really unique ways that have stuck with me and that I'm really happy to, to be sharing with you. So with that, I will remind you that if you are interested in continuing this conversation, as always, head on over to the Marketing for Good Facebook group and we can continue the conversation there. For now, I will invite you into this conversation with Peter Drury. Welcome to the Marketing for Good podcast. I am joined today by Peter Drury, who is a much respected thought leader as well as a truly thoughtful leader. And he brings wisdom, smarts, and inspiration to the impact sector, what we often call nonprofit, but we know to be so much more. He currently serves as Chief Strategy Officer for Wellspring Family Services. He is on the faculty for Seattle University's Master of Nonprofit Leadership Program, serves as a trustee for the Bainbridge Community Foundation, and is a mentor and friend to many developing leaders. In past iterations or chapters of his career, here, here are a few of the titles that he has held. Vice President of Mission Advancement at Make-A-Wish, Director of Major Gifts Corporate and Foundation at Seattle Children's, Director of Strategy at Splash, Director of Development at Sightline Institute, and Pastor at All Pilgrims Christian Church. Yes, you heard that right, a pastor. Peter has three, count of three, master's degrees. I like to tease him that he has way too many letters after his name. He has a Master of Divinity, a Master of Social Work, and an MBA. It is my very great pleasure to welcome you, Peter, to the Marketing for Good podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Erica. It's an honor to be here. Delighted. So your, as we just heard, your career has had many iterations, chapters, whatever you want to call them. To me, there seems to be a clear theme, which would be impact. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just go back in time a little bit and connect the dots for us from pastor to MBA to nonprofit strategist and fundraiser and leader and all points in between. Absolutely. I'll try to be concise. I love that you're asking me. I think you're probably the first person to ever ask me this question publicly, Erica. I certainly fall into this question from time to time. Oh, for example, in the course of my career in a job interview, like, what? Why? Like, you were a pastor? We don't need one of those. <laughs> so, you know, or like, why did why'd you change your career so many times? Yeah. Well, I think I'm asking because, one, because it's, you know, when you listen to podcasts, it's nice to kind of get to know the guest. But also, I, I really feel like your journey is such an inspiring one. And, you know, partially I carry in my heart all my students at the, at the University of Washington, and we're 
you know, we're getting to it's May when we're recording this and they're super angsty about like what's next. And I love sharing stories of like, it can look a lot of different ways. So mm-hmm. that's part of why I'm asking. Thank you. Okay. That helps me good. And I, I'm delighted to answer. And it's interesting because I've actually always felt like there's a very consistent through line for me. And it'll be, I enjoy that you asked me this now for me to kind of share because certainly when I was to your point, like when I graduated from my undergrad, I couldn't have spelled out exactly how it would come together, but I kept just kind of following both, I suppose my heart and my mind for what I thought I wanted to learn and where I thought I wanted to be. And it actually, my whole career feels like one consistent career. It doesn't feel like I jumped all over the place. So let me just back into that a little bit. When I was 10 years old, I told my parents that I wanted to be a minister when I grew up. And that's pretty much because I was inspired by Dr. King and by Mother Teresa and by a few kind of more local folks who I saw kind of doing good things in the world. And they seemed to be connected to the religious community. And since I grew up in a Presbyterian church, I thought, okay, my way to that is to be a Presbyterian minister. So like that, when I was 10, that kind of felt like the way I was headed. And I still remember in junior high reading the diary of Anne Frank, and it had an absolutely incredible impact on my life, still does today. And as I just kind of kept growing and learning about things ranging from religion to social justice, to community, to hope, to healing, I knew I wanted to be in that world somewhere, but I didn't know exactly what it looked like. So um, I kept kind of pursuing this path toward being a pastor, but I have to say that in my, you know, when you're talking about the 70s and 80s, that's a different era of the faith community than we're in now. And I will describe the church of my childhood as you know, pretty moderate and inclusive by today's standards. It was not conservative or fundamentalist or evangelical or exclusive or a lot of other words that you hear used these days. So really, I saw myself following a sense of calling into service uh, and to your word impact, you know, to just make an impact in the world for the greater kind of social good. And so that's really the path I was on. And my interests were really around spirituality and ethics, about nonprofit and kind of counseling and social work and nonprofit organizations. And then um, just being good and business smart about it, making good decisions along the way. And I had grown up in a family business and uh, I felt familiar with and comfortable with kind of issues of business kind of over the dining room table, uh, over dinner, whether that was an HR issue or a financial issue, whatever else. And I want to bring those together. So to really connect those dots for you, it's like I first studied theology and ethics with a master of divinity. I did that in a joint program. I did my MDiv and my master's in social work and MDiv MSW joint degree program together. So when I When I went to grad school the first time, I really viewed myself more as working more in the community, more like a social worker, human services person than as a clergy person. But I was ordained and did serve, you know, in that way. But I always saw those things as connected. And and frankly, in the course of my, like I entered seminary in 1990 and I graduated in 93. So in those years, I was beginning to perceive a shift in the role of kind of the faith community and the beginning of a lot of the polarization we all are aware of today. So I really felt like, you know, I might never serve inside the walls of a church. I might always be on the outside, but boy, do I believe in helping unify uh, Jews and Christians, Protestants and Catholics, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindu, you know, agnostic people, atheist people. I just, I, I really felt like the kind of interfaith dialogue and you know, when people say spiritual, not religious, I just felt like, you know, I'm going to be a part of that community for social change. And so, but what do you do? You know, what kind of a degree do you get for that? Because that's what I wanted to do, but there's no degree. So an MDiv and an MSW got me started. And then about 10 years into my career, I decided to go back and get my MBA, a Master of Business Administration, at a point when many of my friends who'd watched me grow up kind of thought I was selling out like, oh, but I thought you were a social worker. Why are you going to business school? But I had this sense that if I could talk to accountants, if I could understand marketing strategy, if I could do strategic planning, if I knew things about governance and law relative to like HR and boards and all that stuff, then I really thought I could be of greater use and greater impact in my own life. So my own personal question in my career was always, what's the greatest possible impact I can have for good? And I wound up getting that MBA to kind of round those things out for me. And today I just look back and call it all my own, my own independent PhD program in you know, kind of ethical leadership for effective organizations for impact somehow. I mean, I don't know, but that's my long way of connecting the dots. But I very, very happily serve in the impact sector. Uh, and at Wellspring, where I am today, we're a blend of a business and a kind of classic nonprofit. And I love that. I love business modeling and planning and 
organizational leadership for the greater good. And so that's what we do. And, and um, I'll maybe stop short of telling you about the mission of Wellspring, but that's how my career piece gets me here. Well, thank you for being willing to share your path. I think that's so interesting that people haven't asked you about being a pastor. It seems so central to who you clearly are, but that's just me with my own view of, of the interestingness of things. Yeah. You know, I, I do, I, I might just say quickly, sorry, that I, I think a part of that's been, I think we're just in such a polarized time now that people yeah, yeah. Are more scared to ask the question, you know, and it's even awkward sometimes for me to answer it because it's, it would be easy to assume things about me. I mean, you would not know that I worked in an interfaith context around the AIDS crisis in the eighties, you know, like you wouldn't know that. And from that description, it'd be easier to imagine something different. And so anyway, the kind of social justice and inclusion of the church is what I fought for forever. And now I do it kind of outside the walls of the church. That makes me think, I mean, a lot about, a lot of marketing is shaping perception. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is breaking my heart right now is how perception is, is being influence and shaped and, and in, in many, many, many different ways. And I'm not only talking about a political context or a religious context. I, you know, I look at how our kids are being socialized and, and in some ways they are being socialized differently, but in others in really fundamental ways, it's still the same. And I lay that to a great extent at the feet of, you know, marketers um, which mm-hmm. I mean, it's part of the reason I started to do the podcast because I, I just, um, I'm so fed up with, you know, marketing. I truly believe it can be a force for good. I mean, that's not just like puffery that I put on the, on the podcast page, mm-hmm. but that's also because that's how my, you know, career has gone and that's how I've used it. So I don't know, I guess I, I got thinking about that when you were saying that people could, you know, have a, have an impression of you that wouldn't be an accurate perception. You're right. And how often that happens. Yeah, I actually, I've come to believe that perception is nearly everything. I mean, it's, yeah. even if I talk about it in terms of economics and not marketing specifically, you know, people buy things based on what they believe they're going to get out of them, right? Or or they believe what it'll do for their life or whatever. The perception drives us all the time, whether you call that intuition or whether you're adding up the facts or checking consumer reports, but your perception of quality and of value drives your decisions. And so I think, I think you're really right. Perception is powerful. It's so powerful. And even when we're looking at facts, we're looking at those facts in a frame, our own personal belief system, mm-hmm. and our brains will not accept facts that don't align with that frame. Mm-hmm. It's that powerful. I mean, frame, you know, there's that Michael Porter who said culture eats strategy for lunch or something. Yeah, I think Drucker said think it, but yes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yep, but you're right. I, that's, I mean, I think of that. It's like frame, you know, the frame's going to, beat out the facts every time. And we're so mystified by, by misinformation and how we can fall prey to it. And it's like, it's, it's how our brains are wired. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. neuroscience. So one of the other, so there's sort of the containers in which you, you have worked and that's ebbed and flowed. In, in addition to impact, I would say another theme of your work seems to be that you find yourself at the intersection. Mm-hmm of things often, yes, you know, both in terms of sectors, but also strategy, fundraising, branding, marketing, management, leadership, like, was that intentional? Or, or do you just like, that's just where you find yourself? No, I love intersections. I really love intersections. You're exactly right. Like, to me, there's a fine line between having some economics and financial knowledge, but also the heart for service and compassion. And I think that those things don't have to be separate. And I, um, in a prior role, uh, once upon a time, I talked to a medical director of, well, I mean, I guess I can, I think there's no confidentiality on this, to Dr. Ben Danielson, who I admire greatly, mm-hmm. who's the director of the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic in Seattle, an incredible clinic for kids that grew out of the civil rights movement. And I remember speaking with him some years ago uh, when I was getting involved in the campaign for that. And being able to help design that. And I said, you know, my, what I've learned is that even though I don't think I need to make a business case for hope and justice, there are other people who do need the business case for hope and justice. And I said, and if I can help you make the business case, in addition to the compassion case, then we can reach a far broader group of people and we can really build this campaign to be highly effective. And so I found that like, again, there's, there are times when uh, where I am at Wellspring now, we're really focused on the upstream prevention of homelessness. Mm-hmm. And myself in our state capital in Olympia, 
advocating in the legislature for why it's less expensive to prevent you know, eviction and homelessness than it is to respond when someone's already homeless. I personally am more persuaded by the compassion case, which is I just think homelessness is a bummer. <laughs> you know, I think it's a terrible situation to be in. I, and it's traumatic, it's horrible, and it, it ruins lives. And, um, and so that's compelling to me. But I can also make the case that, you know, that the average cost in a night of shelter for a family uh, here in Washington State, all across the state, is $95 a night. But the average cost uh, of keeping someone housed, keeping a family housed, is $35 a night. And so it's a third the cost to keep someone housed as it is to help them once they're in shelter. And so I make that business case and many other, I mean, that's one simple fact. There's many others. But I make the business case and I find people on the right side of the aisle nodding and agreeing with me like, oh, wow, it's less expensive to intervene earlier. And of course, I lead more on the compassion side and I feel like, yes, and it's the right thing to avoid trauma and not put kids and families. And if I might just offer that the way in which you're talking about goes right back to, to we were talking about facts and frames. And so what you have so astutely done is realize that there are two overarching frames in which we think about homelessness. There's more, obviously, but pretty fundamentally, there's, you know, there's the business one and there's the compassion one. And so you have found facts to support different frames rather than trying to use, you know, use facts that aren't, aren't going to be compelling um, to somebody who has a different frame. So that is from a communications perspective. So, so smart. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Do you use your, I want to talk about your beyond cash fundraising dashboard. Oh yeah. Cause I, I'm not going to get this quote right. So correct me on it, but when you were working on that, so I'd love for you to share with listeners what it is and what inspired you to create it because you have the, the saying about money, not all money is created equal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We talk about that. Something like that. I have to, <laughs> yeah. I have to remember. <laughs> something close to that. <laughs> Believe it or not, Erica, I think I created that thing in 2010 or something. So it's 10 years old. So I might not be on top of my talking points. I'll start by saying I I've always provided that for 10 years free to anybody and I'll provide it free to anybody in your audience so we can come back to that just because I think it's a tool for the sector. It's a fantastic tool. But not all, you're exactly right. Um, I have to think about how I used to phrase that, but let me give you the example and I'll probably back into it. So I've often liked to say that if you had a gift of $10,000 from one donor because somebody, um, let's say they went to an auction and they and they said, oh, wow, you mean I can go stay in someone's condo in Vail and I can meet celebrities and have fancy dinners and get massages? I'll pay $10,000 for that. Okay, so there's a $10,000 gift because someone did that versus somebody else who gave $10,000 in a gift that was unrestricted. Let's say it's you know, because the organization changed their life, you know, absolutely changed their life, and they gave it back out of gratitude. That Just because two gifts were $10,000, they don't have equal value in the kind of long-term sustainability of an organization. It's very clear that the transactional gift of the auction was kind of a one and done, whereas the $10,000 gift that was because someone was like thanking, you know, tr basically elevating the organization to the status of family and saying like, look, this is so important to me. You changed my life. I'm grateful to you. I, I want to give back. That the value, just because the cash value looks the same, its value in, you know, in true economic terms is not at all equal. So I think I probably said something like two gifts of the same size are not necessarily equal or something like that, or, you know, but um, something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you're asking about the dashboard. I'll just, I'll try to just summarize it and we can, we can certainly post this however is helpful on the podcast, but this is a dashboard of seven indicators. Uh, they're lead indicators of uh, for fundraising effectiveness that measure not the dollars in the door, but other kind of qualitative and quantitative factors that impact and indicate, you know, your fundraising uh, effectiveness. So I don't think I'll describe them all here right now because it could get pretty geeky pretty fast, but I've tested this with many people over 10 years. I have, I've always put out the offer for someone to add an eighth indicator or to take one away. And frankly, now some of the finest fundraising consultants in the country and the world actually have looked at this and nobody's changed them. And so um, I feel like it's a really time-tested tool to say, what are you going to measure in fundraising effectiveness to know that you're doing the right things? Because frankly, if you only measure the cash, if you only say, did we reach this year's financial goal and you met this year's financial goal, you're not necessarily being successful. I mean, I, I, I like to share this story because it's so true, but the year 
I remember the year that a board congratulated me on a really effective fundraising year um, because it was 2008 and everybody was terrified when that year ended. But I was horrified because I thought it was not the most successful year and I knew that 2008 was tough and 2009 was going to be tougher. But because somebody had died and left the organization in their will and it left a huge gift, it looked like fundraising success. You know, we were stable in 2008 and received a huge gift. And that was lovely, but I knew the picture was bleak for 2009. And I knew that that person was not going to die a second time in the next fiscal year and leave that gift all over again. So in any event, by the same token, I've had years when we didn't meet the financial goal. Maybe it was close, but not quite. And the board was upset. But if you looked at the underlying data, you might say, wow, this is a really successful fundraising year because you were doing the right activities to either get more donors, bring more people in. You know, there's a variety of things you could have been showing success in that will set you up for even greater success in the next year. And most boards and most executive directors and even most fundraisers don't really know how to tell the difference between what's the data for fundraising telling you kind of underneath the surface. So that dashboard was like a, an attempt to help people kind of measure the right things. Yeah, it is a fantastic tool. And we'll put it in the show notes so people can get to it easily. And it's, it's a tool that is simple, but not easy. Mm, it takes a little, I mean, I've, I've watched and because I, I recommend it uh, pretty frequently. And I've watched people sort of go through it. And first they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can whiz through this. And then they're like, oh, hey, wait a minute. So it does take, you know, it takes some thought. And I think that that thought is reflective of kind of a shift in mindset around money, mm-hmm. which is something I wanted to talk to you about because one of the most interesting things is, uh, I mean, people are weird about money in general, at least in North America, we tend to be pretty weird about it. We and I feel like right now with COVID, things are just weird all around. Everything's so weird all the time. And I mean, you're somebody who has tracked people's relationship with money for a long time. Are you seeing any shifts in that? I mean, uh, what I worry greatly about how much we operate in the impact sector uh, from a scarcity mindset. And there's some very valid structural reasons for that. And we're seeing that resources really were scarce. I mean, nonprofits are having to close their doors uh, as are small businesses because there just isn't enough. But I guess I'm curious, what what shifts are you seeing, if any at all, related to how people are thinking about their money? I'm also simultaneously thinking about, I I think it was you quoting Kay Sprinkle Grace who said, people give through you, not to you. Oh, great question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually that one, the, the people give through you. I love that you just said that. I've always felt like I should coin that somewhere. That actually was me, but I... Was it, you? It, Were you riffing on Case Sprinkle Grace? I was, ra- I was riffing on Case Sprinkle Grace because <laughs> people love to say people give to people. And I like to say people give through people. And it's through people who they trust to make a difference in the world, you know, with them in partnership. So, um, in, in, but I think other people have said it too. So I've never tried to like make it like my quote, but but you're exactly right. I do. I love Case Ringo Grace is among the most genius people in this field. So if people don't know her on your podcast, um, I would give you great links on Kay as well. So let's see. So your question, that's so funny. It was so excellent when you were sharing it. And now because of the riff. Well, let me, let me rephrase. If people give through <laughs> you, not to you. And simultaneously, if we're living in a weird time and people are weird about money, is that shifting how they're giving through organizations or to organizations? Thank you. Yes. And nice, nice rephrase. You, you, you had my back. Thank you. Um, that's perfect. So here's what I would say. Two things. First thing is we don't know until this plays out, right? I mean, like any data, I mean, we're all watching trends right now. We're hearing things like that, you know, one in five people who were giving philanthropic before are not now able to give. I think it's going to be a larger percentage than that. But I think you're asking me more about kind of the psyche of generosity in this time. And, you know, Nothing like a pandemic or an incredible recession, much less both, to freak you out about your own sustenance. And I think um, when we're scared about our own survival, it gets harder and harder and harder to be generous. And so I don't think that's a complicated economic idea, but it's, it's very real. And then you add to it now that nonprofits, uh, I think a lot of folks are going to go to business, just like a lot of independent like restaurants and uh, small businesses are going to go to business too. It's, I'm really scared about all this. And so what's happening is, what I'm finding is donors are doing a couple things. One, they're asking themselves, you know, can I give or not? Like, I want to make a difference. How should I do that? And it probably, they probably ask themselves, well, can I volunteer or can I make a mask? You know, can I do something generous? Can I cheer on my friends on Facebook? Like, that's 
you know, like that's a set of questions. But then if they say, well, I'm in a position, you know, they have more of an abundance mentality of like, look, I have some resources. I could be helpful. What am I going to do? So now they start to ask themselves, well, where is the greatest need? And they might say, well, gosh, it's about medical professionals in the hospitals. Or they say, oh, it's about the homeless and how homeless people are being impacted by COVID. Or, oh, it's about children or what, you know. So they're asking that kind of a question. But then they're asking, well, who's going to be around for the long haul? Because let's say you choose that you want to help, you know, organizations helping homeless people being impacted by COVID-19, but you're scared they're going to go out of business because you're not sure if they can sustain. Well, now you're going to err toward maybe bigger organizations, but then you say to yourself, well, they're big, maybe they don't need me. And so I think people wind up in this vague. It's very existential. It becomes very existential. And so... What I like to say, I mean, again, pre-pandemic, but I'll sure say it now, is that when people have a moment where they want to be generous, you know, if you're like, let's say that your aunt died and left you a lot of money and told you, like, you should give some of this to charity. People do not look in the yellow pages, which I date myself, but they don't look in the yellow pages to find a charity. But they also don't just Google, like, who's doing this? They go with someone they already trust. And so, and how would they already trust you as an organization? They would if they had a volunteer experience or a donor experience that was so good that they kept wanting to give or kept wanting to volunteer. So to this whole point of what are we seeing and what are we expecting and what should we be looking at, I think our behavior as organizations right now around kindness, around inclusion, around rapidly thanking donors and thanking them very, very well, all these behaviors really matter because people are going to build perception for years to come, you know, about what was their donor experience or their volunteer experience with your organization. And I think people, I think the scarcity thing is going to live on. I think people are going to be very, um, you, you know, there's, there's a thing about anxiety where like, like maybe I'm really between a rock and a hard place and I need to not be generous because things are so bad and that's fair. But there's also just, I'm close enough to it. I can fear I'm going to be a, putting a rock in a hard place. And I might perceive, back to your word perception, I might perceive that I'm in a really precarious place. And maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm actually okay. But this pandemic has me freaked out, right? So then I think, and I'm, I'm using me metaphorically now, but, you know, a donor is thinking, well, can I give? Can I not? And there's just going to be a downward pressure to give less and less and less or give nothing because people are scared and they want to make sure to take care of their families. So I think that's all going on right now. And so I think... I am trying with our organization and we just had our fundraising campaign last week. We, it was going to be our luncheon one week ago today. And last week we just had it. We set a $355,000 goal. And I got the email right before this podcast now that we surpassed our goal. I mean, we, we raised more money this year than we did one year ago at our luncheon. And we turned it into a virtual campaign. We shared about the need, the way people could make a difference uh, we were, not only did we raise more money, but we spent less money trying to raise it because we weren't holding a big expensive event at a nice downtown. Mm-hmm. Instead of an online campaign. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So Let's I, just have a moment yeah, for the Wellspring team for pulling that off, that off. Thank you. I'm thrilled about it. And yeah, yeah. Alone, I'm watching several organizations right now who if we get really good with our messaging and our marketing, we are actually raising more money for less, to, we're spending less and raising more in this moment in time. And so that's to your point about marketing for good all along. I just feel like that does come back to perception. It comes back to words. It comes back to frames and it comes back to an invitation for a person to make a difference in the world through you, not to you, but through you. And I think that's the work. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really hope listeners are hearing that the, the through you, not to you, because I think what I've, what I've perceived when I've had the pleasure of hearing you say that in front of groups and seeing the room and the shift that happens for people when they're like, Oh, like if I, if I move myself out of the way, this feels much more natural. And it, and it, it, what it does from a messaging perspective is it shifts the fundraiser or the marketer onto kind of the same side of the, mm-hmm. as the donor and your, your gaze is in the same direction. Yes. Beautifully said. And, and that's just so much more comfortable and empowering. And yeah, I, I mean, the other thing I'm really hearing in what you're saying is like back to basics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, when I, when I'm getting asked about it right now for, for marketing, that's my advice is like be unapologetically authentic to who you are as a person and as, as an organization. Let that shine so brightly for folks because nobody wants to think harder than they need to right now or ever really, but especially now. And 
just back to the basics, you know, the amount of time I'm spending just back to the basic, basic quacks and method. What does success look like? Who, you know, who do you need to engage and how are you going to engage them? We're just all pivoting all the time. And what I'm hearing from folks like you and Wellspring who've been successful is back to basics. It's absolutely true. In fact, and when you say back to basics, I know what you're invoking, but I'm going to even go back and I'm going to even go more basically. I think my best kind of coaching and guidance relative to fundraising and marketing was shared by two people who never knew that's what they were coaching me on. And that was my two grandmothers. And when mothers were really good at handwritten thank you notes, and they were really good at checking in with people who they cared about. And when they, when my dad's mom would tell me, Peter, there's nothing more important than telling the truth. I actually think that truthfulness and kindness and a handwritten note and a genuine phone call or in-person visit, whatever it is, I think we're all starving for that now. Yeah, I I agree with that. You know, Vule in his always uh, wonderful way wrote a post uh, in the past couple of weeks, basically making the case that maybe we're going overboard with with gratitude. And his point is is one that is well taken, at least by me. And it kind of want to circle back quickly to your comments about people's decision analysis, of, uh, particular to, to making donations to nonprofits right now. I really do worry that more money will be funneled into bigger, sort of all referred to them as name brand organizations. Not that there's anything wrong with those organizations, but it means that the organizations serving communities of color and marginalized communities already were seeing that they're being left further and further behind. This, yeah. that, that troubles me so, so deeply. And yeah, so, so his, his point is there, you know, to use economic terms, since you are fond of those, um, is that for every handwritten note, there's an, there is an opportunity cost. Yes. And so what's that, what's that balance? Totally. It's, it's absolutely correct. I'm going to answer you in a different way than fundraising and more more to my kind of strategic planning side and, and our approach. So a decision we made at Wellspring that we felt was both excellent relative to kind of leverage and impact, but also excellent relative to our diversity, equity, and inclusion goals was that if we literally found another organization and we seek them out, I mean, we're trying to find them, that's part of my job, who's doing what we believe in doing, then our job is not to duplicate or compete. Our job is to lift them up and partner with them. Yes. And and since we're in the ending the cycle of homelessness for children and families arena, you can actually imagine that that disproportionately affects children and families of color by a long shot. And in particular, Black or African-American families and Latinx families. Um, And so we just said, look, a part of our job is not to become bigger and bigger and bigger, but a part of our job is to partner better and better and better with smaller organizations who know their communities are supporting them, you know, and so I I probably won't take up your time on this in the podcast now, but it transformed how we as an organization conducted our strategic planning and how we define success moving forward. It's literally my job now at Wellspring to help connect about 2,000, like literally, like develop 2,000 micro partnerships around Puget Sound, a three-county area, to make sure that if someone is looking for help and they're scared of becoming homeless, that we can get them as easily and fast as possible to the right place. And we just viewed that that was a part of our job. And so one way that we wanted to have integrity around that was by, in some cases, we offer office space to these partner organizations, not because we want to merge with them, but we want to help, you know, defray some of their costs. Or there might be technology that we have, we do have, that we want to make available to them as if they were in our organization. And so there are some very ethical choices we're making in our strategic uh, kind of planning and trajectory now that I'm, I feel very proud of in the very way you're describing right now. And I several times a week have conversations with another nonprofit leader wanting to make sure they understand we're not trying to take them over or acquire them or anything else, but we want to genuinely support them and have a win-win kind of symbiosis because we're concerned about exactly this. So, yeah. I love that. I love that approach. I, I am hoping that that's one of the things that is going to come out of this. One, I think that we, we can't get around the fact that really fundamentally, we're just all human. Mm-hmm. We're just, we're all human, you know, we're all sharing the earth and these professional, personal distinctions that we used to have are pretty hard to keep up when like your, you know, kid is popping in behind you on your Zoom call or whatever the thing's going to be. We're just... We're all human, and 
I just, I love hearing the dedication to partnership. I was, I actually can't remember what I was, where I heard this recently and I wish I'd, I could. I've always been a little bit, um, not irked, but it, it's tough when working with organizations to, you know, when you ask them questions around what are you, like, what are your strengths? And somebody rephrased that recently and said, what are you uniquely great at? Mm, nice. And I cannot wait to try this. I haven't had a chance yet. I think that's a much easier question. What are mm-hmm. you great at as an organization? And then that's what you do. That's great personal advice too. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that a lot of the advice uh, around marketing and on this podcast, it, you just apply it to life. You know, that's, that's the way it goes. It's not tidily in the organizational container. That's a nice one. I'm, I'm busy interviewing. We're hiring a PR manager right now at Wellspring. And um, sorry, if this lives on as a, as a podcast, I don't know if we'll be hiring in the future. That's okay. Yeah. But we are right now. And I would love to actually ask exactly that question. You know, what are you uniquely great at? I mean, that's a fact, you know, and some people like to ask that, like, what's your superpower? But I feel like that can be a little too grand. I mean, that's a fun question, but I think it's different than what are you uniquely great at? I love yeah. And actually, I added the uniquely great at part. The They were saying, what are you great at? But part of my thing is I truly, truly, truly believe that we are all put on this planet and we have some unique purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, things get in our way and sometimes it can be really hard to figure that out. I believe in the deep wisdom that all of us have and that we have sort of as a universal uh, and it can get pretty noisy and tough to connect with that. Mm-hmm. But really being invited into that and certainly, you know, in my classes at uh, University of Washington, I, m- much to my students' dismay at times, I, I want to say that they're like, oh my God, we're going to get existential again, Erica. It's like, yeah, what you <laughs> uniquely great at? There's only one you. How incredible yeah. is that? I don't know. So I love that. Um, we had a little back and forth recently about a term that I want to that I want to come back to, which is the word investment. Oh yes, right. And I was sort of wondering, like, is that because I, you know, I started using it. It it felt more I don't know why businessy or something. And then we get into return on investment, and I, I can't remember what got me thinking about and sort of wonder worrying whether or not that that gives the wrong impression and could in fact exacerbate existing power dynamics that aren't serving us whereby donors and institutional funders sort of feel like they've made an investment and therefore they are, they are entitled to some sort of return that they're not entitled to. Yeah. You're kind of talking about, yeah, like to don't referring to donors as investors, for example, as opposed to donors. Yeah. Kind of- like, does it give the wrong impression? Is it authentic? Actually, now that we're talking it through, I think that's what, what, what's been bugging me is, is if, if we're meant to be radically authentic, is, is that authentic? It's a fabulous question. I think every organization probably has to ask it for themselves. I would say the investment language relative to philanthropy, I do like, but I I have some guardrails around it that I think are different than other people. So there are some people who will literally refer to all of their donors as investors. And I think if they build that, I mean, I think you can make a case for that if you do it appropriately in certain ways. That's not exactly what I would do, but I will say that we've seen you know, back to your questions earlier about how are donors, you know, behaving and such. I think we've moved from the kind of make a donation to make a difference over the last generation. Like it used to be that like something you just do is give back because it's the right thing to do. And I think we've really watched, you know, people connect their activism and their philanthropy, their donating behavior, you know, over the last generation increasingly. And so this word investor, it kind of came up as a, as a profile. There's a great book called Seven Faces of Philanthropy. I now think there's like eight of them, but that's for a different day. In fact, Rebecca uh, Zanata, who you interviewed in this uh, recently, she and I talked together about trying to redo a book on faces of philanthropy in some way, shape, or form. But, but in the profiles of the different faces of philanthropists, you have kind of the altruist, and you have the person who's kind of giving back. And and there has been emerging this kind of investor donor profile of folks who act a little bit more like venture capital with their donations. And so I think because there really is a group that donates with an interest in social return on investment or what's the thing I'm changing in the world, where can I see the return? I think the investment language can be okay, but we have to be super careful about it. And here's, here's my guidance. I don't personally refer to donors as investors. I might refer to a gift as being like an investment. So like, let's say 
let's say you wanted to build a building that in the future was going to be a shelter or you wanted to buy some land that was going to be a food bank or something. I think you can say, let's say a donor gave a, made a really large gift, like a hundred thousand dollar gift, or they gave a piece of land, you know, or a building worth a few couple hundred thousand dollars or something. I think you could say as a donor, you're truly an investor. You're investing in, you're giving seed capital to help us build on this foundation so that in the future people don't have to be hungry in this very neighborhood. You know, like I think there's a way, there's a storyline around that where you can say your gift is like an investment. It's going to have a return, not for you, but for the community or for families facing homelessness or whatever. Mm-hmm. And to include investment language in a story, as opposed to saying, because you're an investor in Wellspring, you know, you're our most important person. To me, that gives the wrong impression. Mm-hmm. You trusted this mission so much. You believe this mission so much that you were willing to make a gift as you would make an investment. Right? Like, like that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I approach it in that way because of a lot of the reasons, because I do find that downstream, you know, it's not about the one message. It's about years of the same message. And so now you have a board member 10 years from now who thought they were an investor all along. And now they think they can call the shots. They're on the board. They think they're like a stockholder rather than a stakeholder. And then, um, and they want to do something. And I think you can get into some complicated dynamics and governance and kind of appropriate decision-making and all that. And um, there's a reason why we have laws around self-dealing and philanthropy. And I don't think it should happen in a micro environment in a small organization. So but I do think it's powerful to think of your gift like you would invest as opposed to investing in the market, you're investing in the community, you're investing in children or families or the arts. Um, I think that's a pretty powerful idea if, it, if we frame it up in the right way. Well, it makes me go back to that idea of being on, you know, standing side by side with your donors and yes. funders and that you could be, you know, I could imagine language like together we are invested in a future that looks like X, Y, Z. Yes. And then I, I think I can, you know, I could keep behind it more as a verb, maybe. But I, I see your point and, and, I, and I take it around sort of breaking it down and that a gift is an investment. Yeah, definitely. I know, what a, verb, I know what a verb person you are. So I know, love me a good verb. I will, I, but let me, let me tell you, you're standing side by side thing. I just need to say this because there's an old thing that a lot of people get, they don't understand about fundraising. You'll hear people, you know, say why, like if I'm on the staff, why am I being asked to make a gift to an organization? I love the fact, like I work at Wellspring and I'm also a donor to Wellspring. And if I ask, and and I don't mean like, I don't mean like a small donor. Like, I mean, I I make a big philanthropy decision for myself. I make it a stretch uh, for the place that I'm working on behalf of, because I want to ask every donor, I do want to stand side by side with them. And I do want to say, look, I prioritize this mission of ending homelessness for kids and families. I participate in this. I'm asking you to join me and join others who want to make this possible you know, then we can together invest in a future where we don't have homelessness for kids and family. Like, so I feel like I have a position of integrity to have that conversation if I, you know, make a stretch and make a gift. So it's really important to me to be a donor before I ever ask. I don't want to ask people for money for something I'm not willing to support. And I realize that for different people in different levels of, you know, on the staff, that means different things. I just say stretch because I think, I think we need to challenge ourselves to give more than we think we can. And when we've done that, then I think we can ask people to join us. So. Yeah. And also I, I love that you acknowledge that not all, I mean, it genuinely, it is a thing where pay for nonprofits is not fantastic. Um, yeah. And that we have some pay equity issues that are real. So whatever, uh, and I know that there is massive debate around this. However, I sort of come down on, you know, you want, we'll go back to this term, like, what does it look like for you to be as invested in the mission as you're asking donors or others to be, um, is a, is a definitely a worthy question. One of the, the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is that successful external marketing is predicated on successful internal alignment. And you have led many teams over the years. You lead a team now. How do you get people in alignment toward a shared goal or shared vision? Thank you. You've just about stated my job description, frankly. So my job, (laughs) I serve as chief strategy officer, and I think of that as two things. One of them is the future, and the other is alignment. That's really my job all the time, and each one of those has kind of external and internal implications. So I really think here's where the power of story and storytelling and metaphor and language and words 
Uh, I think those things are incredible. And um, for people to have some fairly simple ideas about either what is our story or what are our values, what are our words. And when we can have alignment between what we say externally and what we say internally, it, it becomes incredibly powerful. And I, I might give just a small example of that. Like, I know that in this era when people have a lot of political opinions about like undocumented workers, I don't even like the term undocumented. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure what the better terminology is, but people for whom we're not giving them documents, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what you would say about that. But, but in crisis, where I want to go with this is in crisis response around people facing homelessness and in communities of color who are experiencing homelessness. And then beyond that, communities of color who have their immigration status or their citizenship status is somehow not going to be respected by the federal government in a certain way, shape, or form. Those folks are in an incredibly difficult place um, in their lives. It's just, I, it's un, I don't even know how to begin to describe that. And so if you're staff in an organization and you're afraid that we're telling donors, oh no, we only help certain kinds of people. We don't help the people who, you know, blah, 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 whatever. If you're staff and you're scared that your leadership or your external relations or your donors are getting a different message, it really makes you do your work in a different way. It affects your morale. It affects your belief in the organization. Everything. I mean, obviously. It erodes erodes trust. It erodes trust. It erodes trust. Trust is currency. So I found that when our CEO or our director of housing or I or others you know, when, when, when people on the staff hear us saying to donors and funders or electeds, we serve absolutely everybody. I mean, we have a very obvious sign in our office when you enter Wellspring that all peoples, all shapes, all sizes, all genders, all, you know, um, sexual orientation, race, what it, we have a very clear kind of a, an enjoyable, colorful sign that makes that message really clear coming in. That sign might do more for morale in this organization than anything else. And people know when we're asked publicly, we speak really clearly about our inclusion policies and, and, you know, and commitments. Well, so then when we're in staff meetings around our diversity, equity, inclusion goals internally from an HR perspective, guess what? When there's alignment and congruence, then all the trust can increase and people can work more effectively together and they can believe more in the mission. So I, I just think that the congruence, the resonance between what's external and what's internal and the integrity between them changes everything. And yeah. I've worked with organizations where that wasn't the case. So, I mean, I've, I've seen it, I've seen it go otherwise and I've also, and I've seen the impact. In that. Yeah. I, I think it was Seth Godin who, um, who said, you, you can't just schmear marketing on it. I'm <laughs> 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 sure it was because schmear. I mean, that's just a funny word, but like people know they know. They and then I forget his first name, but the, the psychologist or psychiatrist, I'm not sure which Adler. So there's Adlerian psychology. You're probably familiar yeah. with it. And I think, you know, he speaks, you know, a lot to belonging and our need to belong and that fundamentally we need to be seen and to belong. And those are like the two core things as humans. And again, this gets me back to like, we're just all humans who have to be wandering around into these different contexts. And I have always, you know, Wellspring's been on my radar for a long, long time, but hearing your commitment to partnership and to inclusion and to true deep belonging is very inspiring and to seeing all sorts of people. Thank you. I believe that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible organization. So as people look like we're still in the crisis, (laughs) here we are. If people are looking forward, like it's a little tough to, to, to lift up our heads because we just don't know when coronavirus will not be the first thing that we talk about and think about. Um, that, that uncertain time horizon makes it, makes it difficult to look in that direction even. But I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about how, how do you motivate folks to just take moments of looking out and sort of going from crisis response to rebuilding and what the opportunities are there. I think for me, you know, you really emphasized the word trust earlier in this conversation in relation to I think trust is so critical. And it, it makes me think of this question you're now asking me, which is, I remember there was a point in my life when I learned that trustworthy was a very powerful word. Like, what did it mean to be worthy of trust? You know, I can't just go out there and expect trust. I can't go and buy trust. There's really nothing. I mean, the only thing I can do is behave in a way that is worthy of trust. 
And so my thinking right now in terms of your question is, I think for us to challenge ourselves to be trustworthy, what are the behaviors, what are the practices, what are the you know, principles of being worthy of people's trust? And to me, that leads to a certain integrity. The answer for me is somewhere in, is there a consistency between what we say and what we believe and what we do? It's kind of a trifecta of those three or like a threefold cord of are my beliefs and my words and my actions, are those things consistent? And so if we say, for example, at Wellspring, one of our values is we take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others, then it means I'm not the guy who tells people to work overnight and through their weekends and kill themselves to help some family out there. But instead, I say to someone, we really believe what we say when we say we take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others. And we we want to encourage that practice even of the clients who are here. We want them to take care of themselves so they can take care of others. And so there's a, to me, there's a consistency, there's an integrity of what we're saying with our clients to what we're saying to each other. But I really do think regardless of the organization right now, whether you're in the arts, you know, and you're being decimated in that respect, because tragically that's happening right now, or you're in hospitality in some way, or you're in homeless services, or you're in healthcare, whatever else it is. I think the, the fundamental question of how are you showing that you're worthy of trust? How are you behaving with integrity? Your beliefs, your words, your actions align. I think you will find um, actually that a lot of things become easier. I really do. Uh, that's another conversation for another time. If we just get rid of like conflicting messages and beliefs and behaviors. But I also think you'll find that there's this incredible alignment between the work we do on the ground for impact and the messages and the stories we're telling kind of externally. And then on the other side of this crisis, when people say, who do I trust? Guess who they're going to point to? They're going to point to the organization that was trustworthy when things were really, really down. And they're going to remember that they trusted them, that they had, that the organization had integrity and they'll come back. They'll, um, they will come back and they're going to support the organization. In the future. Yeah. I love that. That theme of alignment and, and also that you rearrange trustworthy to be worthy of trust. Cause you know, I love verbs and I also love rearranging <laughs> words. <laughs> Like awesome. Yeah. Of course, I love, I, I am a, a fan of the word awesome, but the reason I'm a fan of it is because when you unpackage it, it means something that inspires awe, some yes. awe, awe, some. Mm-hmm. I like awe. I think it's pretty, I, I like it. So uh, worthy. So be worthy of, of trust. And that alignment. Yeah. One of the questions that I, that I've been reflecting on a lot is what is the essence and therefore what can fall away? Mm-hmm. Sort of in, in, again, in life, uh, but also as it relates to how are you thinking about your marketing? How are you thinking about showing up as an organization and as a leader feels more important? And yet you have to balance that with this taking care of yourself. So how can you take care of yourself so that you can show up authentically in, in the way that, that, that you want to? Rebecca Zanata was uh, on the on this podcast previously, and she, I don't know how we landed on this, to be quite honest. Maybe, so I started journaling on like blank sheets of paper recently for, because I, my journal ran out and I was too lazy to order a new one. Mm-hmm. And I realized I loved actually journaling on just blank sheets of paper. And so I think that was the genesis of this conversation, this idea about what we're now calling Blake Sheet Fundraising, which is the idea that you would, it might be the simplest direct mail piece ever, you would mail your donors, potential donors, volunteers, whoever, something to explain to them and just include a blank sheet of paper and that would be an invitation to co-create the future. So she was talking about the, you know, the importance of bringing people into co-creating the future and living into your vision. And, um, I can't wait for somebody to try it (laughs) (laughs) or just in like on a smaller scale, you know, what would it be like to sit down with a donor and just have, you know, have a blank piece of paper and have them doodle or write or whatever. But I think there's power right now. And that's, it's so hard on so many levels. This Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, the, the, a clean slate is always so alluring. And so the, the blank sheet is sort of a stand in for the, for the blank slate. Or the mm-hmm. late. Any thoughts on that? Well, I don't know if it's exactly in where you're pointed, but just it's just a random association as you say that. So a lot of my life is in strategic planning and strategic trajectories. I say trajectory when I'm talking about once we've done the plan, it's like the work we do to get toward impact. Uh-huh. So planning process or in the 
actualization of the, you know, toward the trajectory. And I think of a blank, kind of a blank sheet, a blank slate in this way. You know, so many folks in management or in a variety of staff roles get so focused on timelines. Like if we have a strategic plan, they say, well, what's a timeline? What do we achieve in one year, two years, or three months, or six months, whatever? And I'm more interested in sequence than I am timelines. So for example, some things have to happen before other things. And then other things have to happen before those things. And so for me with a blank slate, I love with a board or a leadership team or a group of donors or volunteers with more of a blank slate kind of, I haven't used that blank sheet literally like you're saying, but something like this to just say, what's the sequence? I mean, if, you know, if we really want to get to this huge goal five years from now, what has to happen before we get there? And that leads you back to, oh, well, we would need X, you know, like money or resources or marketing or like, and then say, okay, well, what happens before that? What, what needs to be true before that thing? And then keep moving and kind of back your way up to the present and then think about timelines. I would like to start with a focus on sequence, kind of what has to happen in what order. Because otherwise, when we get rushed, like, well, I need this in three months and this in six and this in nine and this in 12, then we set some unrealistic goals and we start on the next phase before we're ready for it. So I think that from a quality perspective, I think we want to really understand, let's break down what's the sequence of moving from from point A to point B how many, like, are there a hundred steps in between there or three? And let's really think that through and then create the plan. And I'm hearing a little bit in this, a, maybe uh, a plug for reverse engineering. That's exactly what it is. I like to call it backcasting rather than forecasting. Oh, backcasting. I like to go from the point of impact in the future and then cast back. Yes. It's going to do to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know Hilde Gottlieb has has a lot about, you know, she's a fan of reverse engineering. So shout out to Hildy for sure. On shout that. out to Hildy. Yeah. She's influenced a lot of my thinking on the, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned Hildy because she has a, played a huge role for me maybe 10 years ago in thinking about this. So yeah. Mm, backcasting. Love it. Okay. I want to be mindful and for your time and not take up too much of it. I ask every guest, this is this last question, which is what inspires you and what keeps you motivated to do this work? And I ask it because the root of the root inspiration means to breathe in and the motivation is about action. So you need breath to take action. So we need both of these things. And so I'm curious for you, Peter, what, what inspires you and what motivates you? Oh, wow. I love that question. I love the word inspire and indeed know it's all about breath. So, um, I'm going to pause and answer slowly because I want to give you a really good answer. Give me just a moment. Um, it would be appropriate to take a breath, actually, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Before you take exactly. action. I literally yeah. just closed my eyes and took a breath as you asked that. And I would say, you know, here's what inspires me, Erica. I feel like we're living in a world and in a time where things are so broken and where there are so many people experiencing either pain, injustice, you know, violence or fear, whatever, whatever it is, there's so much just hurt out there. And I actually believe that we can make it better. I I truly do. And it would be so easy to be discouraged and feel like there is absolutely nothing I can do, but I just don't believe in being resigned to that. So what inspires me is asking, what can I do? You know, I said earlier about my career, it was always my question was, where's my greatest possible impact? Where's my greatest possible leverage of my life? You know, where, where can I really? And so the opportunity to be a part of healing or love or justice at a time when I feel like those things are all kind of out there for the, either for the taking in one way or another, to be a part of the healing work is really what inspires me. And so I, I reflect on it every day. I get excited to come to work. I'm not, you know, I'm not scared to come to work or burnt out or anything else. I love doing my work and I'm proud to tell my kids about it because, and I, I say that because it's part of my inspiration is my children and my family, but I'm proud to tell my kids what I do for a living. I'm proud that they're interested in the work that I do. And I feel like there's a connection between kind of who I am as a human being and what my career is and I feel inspired to be able to act upon it in such a way that I can just, at the end of the day, I actually really can sleep well, that I'm doing my part to make a difference in the world rather than somehow being resigned to nothing. So I love it. I'm fired up. Good. 
Good. One of the things that you are uniquely great at, Peter, is giving me, and in this case, listeners of this podcast, different ways of thinking through things, but in a way that feels accessible. So sometimes, you know, new things make our brains hurt, but you have a little <laughs> magic around like backcasting and being worthy of trust and just the small things that then you come back to them and you're like, that's actually huge and massive in my thinking, but it's absorbable. So I, I, I so appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thrilled to be here and excited about your listeners. I hope your audience is, really does take on kind of marketing for good in any way, shape or form. It works you know, for them to just be inspired to be out there doing amazing things. Me too. Me too. If, if, if I do my job, they are both inspired and motivated and see that, they, you know, they're already doing so much good. So, yes. Yeah. So thank you to you, Peter. Thank you to our listeners for joining the conversation. Uh, if you want to continue the conversation, of course, go over to the Marketing for Good Facebook group. I will be there. Obviously, Peter has given us so many things to talk about. So let's continue the conversation over there. And I will end by saying do good, be well, and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.